Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome to another edition of the In the Mouth of Darkness It Mod Chatcast. I am your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Billy Das, the Indie Dork. What's up, Billy? Uh, just happy to be here, man. Living my best life. Billy, this is your first time on ItMod Chatcast since we've rebranded and have a new channel. That's true. What do you think about it so far? Uh, it's it's much roomier in here. I like the look of the space. Uh, I think I'm going to stay. Okay. Well, well, guess what? I'm keeping you. You don't get to leave. Uh, I am incredibly excited about this conversation today. Spoilers. We've had it already. And I think it's a pretty great one. Uh, I like a lot of what Bob had to say about this movie. Plus, I was a big fan of the movie. I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, we should actually say who we're talking to, even though the listeners have probably clicked on it, knowing full well who we're talking to. True. But well, it's, let's let's do it anyways. Okay. We're talking to Robert D. Kraskowski, the writer-director of The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot. Maybe the greatest title ever put on a screenplay. It made me want to see it, for sure. For sure. And totally defies expectations based on the movie you picture in your head when you hear this title. Yeah, and of course we have to talk about that (laughs) title and the genre and what his expectations were uh, unleashing a title like this onto an audience. (laughs) So, yes. I had a really weird conversation with my parents after this because they, I was talking to them uh, after I got back uh, from Winchester and they, uh, they were like, who did you talk to? And I said, oh yeah, I talked to this guy. He made this movie uh called the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot and they were like oh, what what's what's a movie like that about <laughs> oh it's all in the title folks <laughs> it is in the title it's right there that's the whole plot what's great about the movie is the character the emotion yeah. of that plot uh, i think we spend too much time in pop culture in movie conversation discussing narrative mm-hmm. and for me Nine times out of ten, the reason I fall for a movie is emotion, character. Hmm. And I think The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot uh, proves that point in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, last bit of housekeeping, as Billy mentioned, we went and met up with Bob at the Alamo draft house in Winchester, Virginia. Thanks to our buddy, Andy Geyerson, the programmer out there. He's the best. Yeah. Not only is he the best because he programs movies like the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, but then he sells out that audience. Boy, I could not have been happier to see such a huge audience at that particular screening. And it was an audience of people who weren't, you know, exploitation fans or genre fans or World War II fans or Bigfoot fans. They were there because that title sounds interesting. Andy usually programs a good movie and the director's there. Yeah. I think that's what's beautiful about Winchester. They had a good film community. For sure. And we had this conversation up in the projection booth. So you know what that means. It's a little echoey. It sounds a little weird. Every chat cast, I know I get just a tad defensive about the audio quality of the interviews. Uh, and that's not going to stop because I suck when it comes to technology. <laughs> we, I, I don't know. We've got, we've got some ideas for some solutions in place. Uh, some ideas. Yeah. But those ideas cost money. So. We're working on it. We're working yeah. on it. Okay. I think we've babbled on long enough, Billy. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Uh, Bob, why don't you take it away, sir? 
And we are back in the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester projection booth. And joining us today, very special guest, Bob Kraskowski, director of The Man Who Killed Bigfoot. No? Wrong. The Man Who Killed Hitler. Yes. And then The Bigfoot. You got that. That's the right right title. It's a mouthful. Well, that's the, <laughs> the beauty of the, the film. I think when we talked last, uh, we talked about the title. That's where we started our conversation. Mm-hmm. And I would actually like to start our conversation where we ended last time, which okay. was with the influence of Mr. Rogers okay. on Sam Elliott's character. Um, t- talk, talk about that. Like, wh- Why is Mr. Rogers a good backbone to set his character on? I think that a lot of the American heroes that we see in cinema um, get a lot of joy out of killing the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially if it feels like fantasy. Uh, But I thought it'd be interesting to have kind of this classic American hero that feels great remorse for his actions and also there's something inherently decent and simple about this guy and how he interacts with young people and old people in his town. Um, but he has this big secret. And so in writing the story, I was thinking a lot about Fred Rogers and thinking, well, what if a guy like that was an incredible hunter, tracker, assassin? What would he be like in his retirement? <laughs> um, and that was... And, and then I pictured very much a Norman Rockwell influence, which you can kind of see across the movie. Um, DP, Alex Vendler, and I talked a lot about Norman Rockwell paintings and even trying to replicate some of those so that it would have that spirit. And then the small town, Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, that I live in, has a very Norman Rockwell, very much uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood kind of feel to it. So. I think, you know, when when you said that towards the end of our previous conversation, I got so excited because, like, right now, you know, obviously we had the documentary, uh, uh, Why Won't You Be... Won't You Be My Won't Neighbor, you be my neighbor. Yeah, which I cried for the whole last 15 minutes. S- same. Of and I feel like I need heroes like Fred Rogers right now. Mm-hmm. I need kindness to be a weapon, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, I need it as a shield in 2019 America. Yeah. And so I responded very positively to everything you just said then. And yeah. it does tie into what I think about my grandfather in World War II and when he would tell me stories about his time overseas. Yeah, my grandfather as well. Yeah. It, that That... We tend to think of it as the great war, the good fight, mm-hmm. um, and we think of it altruistically, but it did have a toll yeah. on these veterans, and I yeah. think that's like a big chunk of what your movie is talking about. Yeah, it's talking about that private, secret toll that it's take, taken on these guys, uh, and some of them felt it the instant they came home or in the midst of it, and then some of them, it kind of grew toward this pain. Um, because they had to do things that weren't at all in their nature. And so going back to Fred Rogers, I just was imagining what would a character like this, how, how would he feel if he was confronted with these violent actions, but in every other way. He just wants to be a simple guy that maybe owns a hat store, falls in love, lives in a small town, has a job and, and connection and family. And I think that he looks up to his brother. I think the... The thing that most people, you know, maybe if you see it a, a first or second time, I don't know if people are catching it, but I think that the hero looks up to his barber brother and mm-hmm. everything that he has. It's not a jealousy or an envy. There's no, nothing 
toxic there. I think it's just he looks up to him. Mm-hmm. And in, in through this, again, this kind of American idealized view of a war hero, we would think everyone looks up to Barr. Right. Whereas well, it, to me, I feel like it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. He kind of wishes he had everything that his brother has. And yeah. his brother clearly just idolizes and worships mm-hmm. his, you know, Sam's character. Larry Miller's so good in, in the film. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, he, he deserves to hear that. Yeah, he's fantastic. I love him in the film. Uh, and ultimately, the, you know, not to spoil too much uh, to our listeners who haven't watched it, but I, I think the emotional payoff of the film really ends up being on him. Yeah, I think that it's a. there's two love stories in the movie. There's a love story between a man and a woman. That's between young Barr and Maxine, so young Calvin Barr and, and, and uh, Aiden Turner mm-hmm. and Caitlin Fitzgerald. And then there's this love story between Sam and his brother. Um, and like you said, I think that that one becomes the only one that can pay off mm-hmm. because he's right. lost this great love that he had in the past. So that's the only connection that he can seek in this timeline that we're in now. You know, talking about Rockwell, Mr. Rogers, your grandfather, my grandfather, when you hear the title, you know, the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, I think a modern audience is now used to this nostalgia porn that is happening and might expect that this movie is going to be a grindhouse throwback. And it's not at all. I mean, it really is rooted in history yeah. and that, um, that emotional experience. I mean, even the killing of Hitler is rooted in history because when he gives his speech, he explains this didn't change the history books at all. And so the only cheat that we do is that it's doubles that kind of finished out the war as Hitler hmm. and that this coward and womanizer winds up being the one in the bunker that that kills himself. But otherwise, history is completely unaltered and that was I think the fun of this character yeah it's he not did an this, alternate history movie it's, it's not, not like supposed to be yeah like no it's meant to it's, I, the trick was to figure out a way to do this story with this title but our timeline remains unchanged and I thought that once that was solved it made this character all the more sad because he does this incredible thing and it means nothing. Hmm. I'm kind of curious. I, the, the speech that you're talking about is, I think that's my favorite moment of the movie, honestly, because... Sam, I, Sam Elliott's Quint speech yeah. from Jaws, which I didn't realize that's what it was <laughs> until Joe Kramer, our composer, he goes, he goes, this is like Quint's speech in Jaws. He's like, this needs some Jaws music under it. And, and I was like, will that be, can we get away with that? He's like, let me take a hack at it. So if you watch those two scenes as a piece, watch the Quint scene, then watch Sam scene. Joe Kramer is very slyly playing off of what John Williams did there. So I don't think Joe will mind me saying that. <laughs> John Williams is his hero. He's not going to mind me spilling the beans. Um, but I, I think the thing that I like about that conversation is that it hammers home this idea that there are great events that take place in the world and that ideas last longer than people. Mm. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, where do you like, where do you come in on great people shape history or history forces people to step up and fill those roles? Are, are we victims of our times or can we influence the things around us? I think time is cyclical and we keep repeating our mistakes over and over again. And I think we're watching that happen as Yo. we speak. Um, so this was a way of very slyly in a movie that has such a ridiculous title to call attention to. And I didn't write it with any political motivation. That wasn't the point. I, don't, I, don't, I think when you do that, it comes across as really obvious yeah. and maybe even pandering. And then you're alienating half your audience who have a completely different perspective. Yeah. And I don't want to do that either. So all I'm trying to do is, is use the movie as a way of 
of kind of like a bedtime story for adults or a parable is yeah. to is to convey some of these thoughts and feelings without preaching but if I'm being perfectly honest with you it's pretty obvious that some of these notions and ideas are circling back around and they've clearly outlived the person that put them forth yeah and so that's going to happen again as we speak the person that's putting these things forth will one day die and now those ideas have power and they will continue to reverberate I, you know, I, one of the things that Brad and I talk a lot about is uh, old man movies, um, where it kind of the, the men look back at their lives and the things that they've done and, and sort of contemplate what is the measure of a man. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that conversation in that context of what is the measure of the man, because even by his own measure, he went and he did what he was asked to, um, but the payoff isn't the same. Mm. Uh, and I love the, uh, the juxtaposition of that and the conversation with him and the Russian in the past where he sort of learns that lesson a little bit. Sure. He talks about, um, you know, America thanks you for this. Yeah. And the Russian says, well, we're, we're just, we're fucking people standing here and you mm-hmm. need to talk to me like I'm a person yeah. because that's what we are at the end of the day. Yeah. And I just, I, I love the way that the movie explores with that. But I guess, I don't know, I didn't even think about it as, um, when I was asking the question, I wasn't even thinking about current events and mm-hmm. the cyclical nature of history. But uh, Yeah, the movie yeah. isn't meant to be yeah. relevant. It's just a tragedy of our times that, there's a relevance at all. Well, and it, it couldn't be, right? Because you wrote this a while ago. I wrote ago. this back when Bush was president, I think. So this was a long time ago. Right, yeah. right. So you've had to maintain your idea of what this movie is for, you know, over a decade? Yeah, and I had people that, that piece by piece came along and supported that. Um, but yeah, I very much defended what this thing was and, and, and wanted it to be this. I mean, the movie that people see... For better or worse, wherever they fall on this kind of movie, um, it's exactly what we all set out to make. It's the script verbatim. And how many movies do you get to see where the director can sit down and unequivocally say, "This is my movie. this is the movie," <laughs> and and so you can judge it any which way. But that's what we all set out to do, and that includes John Sayles and Sam Elliott and Douglas Trumbull and all these people that came Amazing around. Amazing people. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy <laughs> to me. You just rolled off the list of names, and I think to myself, how do, how does this happen? It, how, so how does this happen? <laughs> it's a real. I mean, it's a really long story, and and you're talking a story that that took years. Yeah. Um, and I don't come from any money, and I definitely I'm not. I don't live in Hollywood. I live out in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts. Um, and I think that there's like there was a gravitational pull toward a certain type of person toward this movie. And when I look at this group of people, they all share a certain set of qualities um, that are unique to what this movie is trying to say. And I think each one of those people maybe throughout their careers hadn't had an opportunity to say it in quite this way or had said it in a different way and saw this as, as a new and strange way of presenting those ideas. So... Um, the the real answer is just time. Um, but when you're writing this movie, it's coming, you know, when you're formulating it, that is around the period where Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez have Grindhouse coming out. And yeah, I went and saw it. Shotgun, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I went, went and saw those and, and, and had already written this movie and was thinking about this movie in the context of those movies coming out. And I kind of knew that now that that resurgence had happened, it would forever mark the perception of this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. But I also thought that cinema's always playing kind of with its own... Uh, 
notions and ideas and it, all movies are aware of all other movies and so I thought that what it would actually do is create this strange little bubble that once people entered it it would be surprising so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm glad those other movies exist and I enjoy those other movies but I didn't want this movie to be like those movies because now I'm just a Johnny come lately and I'm not I have nothing to say well it's so they not don't they like don't need me that those guys, you know the, the audiences don't need me to go try to beat the drum that these guys are beating because mm -hmm. they they do it so well they mm -hmm. do their thing and it and it and it it makes people exhilarated to go see their movies but if I try to you know ape that then mm -hmm. But I imagine the script that attracts people like Douglas Trumbull and John Sayles and Sam Elliott. And Lucky McKee. And Lucky McKee. Yeah. Uh, God, like, again, That's like just a crazy list of names. That, that attracts them it might also confuse somebody who has the pockets. The way I see yeah, well, I mean, I know we confused the audience on some level. Mm -hmm. and, and I also feel like that confusion is just a cloud. It's just, it, it will lift. And people mm -hmm. will just eventually, the, the title, The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then The Bigfoot will be no more strange than Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm -hmm. Kid. I mean, mm -hmm. that's an, you know, when that came out, that's a long kind of, Hmm, what the heck does that mean? It'll just be a title that exists and you won't think of the weirdness of it anymore and you'll just take the movie on its merits. And that's what film and film history does is eventually the movie settles into its actual position. So right now people are discovering it and there's mm -hmm. a conversation about what it should or shouldn't be. And then five or ten years from now it's just this is the movie. This is the film. So, yeah. so what's the, what's your, so, okay, so yes, I agree. I, I think that's spot on. I think that's exactly how things work. But you're the guy who was behind the movie coming out. What's your what, what's that experience like when you kind of see that there's a five year trajectory here for yeah. people to sort of engage and even become comfortable with like the, the I often think of I often think of when you make something the way I, I have an image in my head of ET's heart pumping in his chest and I feel like right now people can reach into my chest and grab my heart if they want to and they can squeeze it and I just have to kind of remain detached because it can hurt when people um, especially as a first time filmmaker and you're exploring mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that they should take it easy on me that's not a fair request mm -hmm. my, my heroes growing up I have a you know a handful but two of them were Pauline Kael and, mm -hmm. and Roger Ebert I mm -hmm. made it a point in college to read every review Roger Ebert ever wrote so I can't be upset when somebody has an issue with the movie or, or they and it's not fair to say they didn't get it because yeah. the truth is I hate when people say well you didn't get it that's it, the that's, worst <laughs> response that's the it's worst not, response it's really not fair yeah, yeah, it's a bad I response. And so I, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say that when I first saw The Big Lebowski and the Coen brothers are two, two of my favorite filmmakers ever. And, I, and Fargo was a gigantic influence on this movie. But when I first saw The Big Lebowski, I am I'm here to admit I didn't get it. I, 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 I sat there. I watched it. I didn't laugh. I felt like completely befuddled. This yeah. isn't Fargo. This isn't. Yeah, what? <laughs> I just didn't. I didn't. I couldn't. It did not compute. And so that when I finished that movie, I would tell people, I don't know about that one. Then a few years later, I was over some friend's house, and they had it on in the background, and they were dying laughing at all these beats and all these jokes and all these things that, for whatever reason, just they weren't received the first time. And I was like, what is? What's wrong with these people? Why do they think this is so funny? Then five minutes later, I was like. Oh, that joke is pretty funny. Oh, that actually does work. And by the end of that movie, watching it with a group of people who understood it 
put it through a completely different lens and now it's one of my favorite movies. So that is that's always been the power to me of a movie that that shifts and winds up finding its place in your in your brain and going, oh, that that works. That doesn't just work, I love it. Right. An audience can come to find a film, can revisit a film, but you as the filmmaker, and over, over 15 years of trying to get this to be the film that you want it to be, yeah. and you say that you filmed the script that you had, mm-hmm. how do you stay rigid? How do you complete the task of the film that you saw 15 years ago versus film that you had to shoot then I think that the saying fear the man who has nothing to lose would go through my head a lot it was just I I, I'm an honest person and you you know you should never trust the person that tells you they're honest (laughs) I've 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 gotten I've gotten in a lot of trouble for being honest especially in this business it can burn you really bad um and it means taking a much slower path um but I'm also I I know that I'm stubborn so that's I guess part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, well, stubborn. I think I think that is a, a sign or a, uh, a characteristic that every artist has to have. You have to be stubborn. Yeah, and you have to have belief in what you're. No, doing. I fully I fully believed in what we were doing, and I was that was bolstered by this group of people coming around. It made it all the more apparent to fight harder. Mm-hmm. And I think some of those people saw themselves as human shields for this as well, mm-hmm. because. It was going to be done on a budget that was just of the size that we wouldn't have to compromise. And I, I went and raised about a fourth of the budget, which all the more so made it so I wouldn't have to compromise. Because I could only always say, my investors don't want it that way. Mm. Even more than that, once Sam Elliott read it, he said, I just, he called me one day, he goes, you know, I've worked on projects where it gets changed. And he's like, I want to say the words that are on the page. And that became like the greatest secret weapon. It's just, well, Sam wants to say the words that are on the page. <laughs> oh Did your head explode after he said that to you on the telephone? Because holy shit, right? <laughs> I, I, it, that was all really surreal. Him calling me and having yeah. this long conversation, him talking about his father and me about my grandfather yeah. and yeah. Sam feeling like he could say something with this movie again, kind of like a parable. Um, he is very concerned about a, a, the decay of decency in America, and he really felt like this movie could be an opportunity to quietly kind of state something. So my head exploded just that he got it yeah. so much. And, yeah. and if you watch this movie, if you want to complain that the movie is it's a slow pace, I mean, that was written into the script. It's a character study. You have mm-hmm. to study your character. That means taking time with them. That means you know living and breathing with them. But watch what Sam Elliott is doing. He is setting the pace for the movie. Yeah. Watch how long Sam takes to make decisions and how long he takes to consider an object in his hand or when he's talking to somebody, the moments that he pauses. For me as a first-time filmmaker, sitting with my editor, I don't think it's right for me to truncate those moments that Sam is trying to do something. Those are his. So I was trying to honor that in the edit. So the measure of the movie is really dictated by Sam's intention for this character. And that's a very kind of 70s Hal Ashby, Robert Altman yeah, way sure. of approaching a for movie. Sure. I don't think there's there's a certain sector of the audience that has absolutely no patience sure. for that kind of thing. And I can't I I can't sit here and, and feel bad for them and I can't help them. So you well, that's part of the trick of the movie, right? You trick them in a little bit with, you know, a, a Bigfoot, Hitler, what? And then they get this contemplative story about the effect of violence on a on a soul. 
but what I love so much about this film in particular, especially coming out now, the serendipity of Sam Elliott, Star is Born, mm -hmm. press around the Academy Awards, mm -hmm. and this film is getting, it seems like it has really caught the fire of internet attention, article attention, because of Sam Elliott's presence and what the stamp of, of approval that he gives mm -hmm. just by being in the film. Sure. And it changes any perspective that you might have thought if somebody else was in it, you know, yeah. uh, any other actor, it would just be different. Yeah, we had talked about a small handful of actors, and, and some of them were really kind of much smaller, bordering on unknown actors. But once Sam's name came into the mix, and that is partially, I owe a debt to John Sayles when he had uh, breakfast or lunch with Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand, and he just got talking about this movie and some of the people's names who were in the mix. And when he came out of that meeting, he sent me an email back saying, we're all kind of thinking it should be Sam Elliott. And that really just cemented it, that, that there was this vote of confidence from these three heroes of mine sitting around talking about this thing that, again, hadn't been made and there was every indication that it would take another six years to make it. But once Sam came on board, it was like rocket fuel. The movie was going to happen, which was terrifying. So can we go back in time a little bit of, you know, when you're formulating the film, you, you, or you've got the screenplay. Yeah. But how does it end up getting into these people's hands? How do, how do you, how does this army form around the well, film. Well, for, like, for, for Joe Kramer, the composer, I had done a short film called Elsie Hooper. So I sent that to him. He did the score for that for an extraordinarily... I mean, it, it basically a non-existent fee. He just said he couldn't do it for free. I can tell you, he's told this story. He... Mm -hmm. he, he uh, he said, I, you know, I can't have it going around. I'd, I'd do something like this for free, he said, so I have to charge you something for it. I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll go raise some money. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll find a way. He goes, no, no, no. How does $200 sound? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, sending the, the short film to Joe really helped. Uh, Douglas Trumbull had seen the short film, and he wanted to talk to me about these kind of futurist ideas that he has about film, his high frame rate 3D technology. He built a pod uh, on his premises at Trumbull Studios and could actually sit down and watch this, the, the, the best, most beautiful, crisp 3D I've ever seen. Wow. I hope Terrence Malick, who's close with Doug, I hope Terrence Malick uses this technology oh, for a movie because had it been used for Tree of Life, it would have been the most intimate movie ever made, uncomfortably intimate. People would have left the movie halfway through because of how close everything would have felt, but there would have been another sector of the audience that I think would be... It would almost be a spiritual uh, experience. So Doug has designed and created something that is is incredible, and it's very specific. It will only work for very certain kinds of movies. But um, you know, so he took me out, and wanted to show me that because of the short film. So it was, cool. and then Doug and I got talking about this script and I think he was so mind boggled by it but also thought it sounded cool that he, he knew here's a bunch of old techniques we could use, matte paintings and miniatures and you'll get the scope of your story but you'll never, you'll never have to do much more than a couple big uh, you know a couple big shots per sequence that sell your idea so that you're always just telling the story. When he brought Richard Urisich on uh He's very much a storyteller, so his primary function was to get the shot count down for the visual effects 
and get just the most specific shots that help me tell this story. Mm -hmm. So all of these guys, beyond being incredible directors or technicians or whatever, Joe is a composer, Lucky, all of them are incredible storytellers. So it was really just how do we tell the story for this, this tiny little budget. And I will uh, add in, you may be privy to this uh, early story this evening. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to have a little Elsie Cooper in this. Oh, yeah. Tonight, for the first time ever, here at the Alamo in Winchester, Virginia, <laughs> uh, the, the short film that I made with... Uh, Lucky McKee and John Sales and, and that's awesome. We're gonna play it in front of the movie, so it'll be the first audience sold out tonight. That's gonna get to see Elsie Hooper. It's never been put online. Nobody's that's awesome. Seen it, so. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, and and uh, and I love. I can't wait to watch the film with a crowd because and a, a sold out crowd. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's gonna be a, a a blast. Isn't the right word because again, it's. It's going to be fun to see people react to it. I'm looking forward yeah, to the reaction yeah. to it. Yeah, it's been addictive. I mean, Joe Kramer said he almost never sits and watches the movie. that he's, He'll go to the premiere and watch it once. But he and I have traveled around with the movie, and almost every time we do this, this false game of, do you want to go get a drink? Do you want to go leave? And then the audience is settled in. We're like, well, we'll watch 10 minutes. <laughs> and then you, you wind up watching the whole movie with them because it's so fun to watch the audience's expectations shift. It's interesting to see the people who are really getting it and having a you know a, a great time with it, laughing at every joke, and then to watch the other people who just feel bamboozled. <laughs> and, and, and then some of those people they they come around toward the end because it was never ever in this whole conversation. I've never said nor will I ever say that we were trying to trick anybody. That wasn't the point. I think cinema is supposed to surprise you and make you feel like you discovered something. So this movie, I didn't want to force the audience into a passive role, so there's certain questions that are left open. I wanted it to be interactive. Uh, and some people, and to no fault of their own, they work their butts off. They want to go to movies, and they just want to escape. Um, so maybe this isn't that movie. If you want to see that movie, it exists every three weeks. You can go see a movie that gives you all those things. Do you think often about how your film is being consumed? Um, I think you have to, especially as a producer. I think if I wasn't a producer on the movie, I could just go into full artist-director mode and never have to think about it. But when you're producing it, you're constantly updated with everything everybody's mm -hmm. saying, all the reactions, and, and so... And it's a concern because you want the movie to do well for all the people that that backed it, for all the people that took a risk on the project. So you become hyper-aware, and it gives you, I think, a thicker skin when you produce your own thing. It, mm. it, it, you, you're forced to kind of almost be of two minds of it. And how are you feeling about the distribution of the film? I think RLJ uh, took this movie on with a ton of excitement. I, and I know that they, they hired an incredible press team at uh, Katrina Wan mm -hmm. PR, so some really great people who have hustled really hard on behalf of the movie. Um, and I know when Aiden and Caitlin and I, when we were talking about this movie, we were like, wouldn't it be a miracle if it played in, you know, 10 theaters or whatever? And now it's, <laughs> play, you know, it's playing at select theaters all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, I think you only just hope that people will see it and what RLJ's done is made sure that the conversation has been lively and ongoing and lots and lots of people are seeing the movie so I, I can't I can't complain and I'm not gonna 
I'm not going to try to second guess any of their decisions because I have to, just like I did with the crew, you have to trust everybody to their gifts. So Mark Ward and Linda Shorts at RLJ, they're gifted at this, and you just have to let them you just have to let them drive. And has it been fairly stressful? You just you just step back and enjoy. Um, the the all, there's still always ongoing business stress, stresses because mm-hmm. you're just again you're aware. There's taxes. There's there's things that I have to be a part of, uh, paperwork and bookkeeping and all that. That stuff is all stuff that were a necessary evil of getting the movie done. I have to be a part of those those elements. So those are stressful ish, but no more stressful than any guy that works in a cubicle and mm-hmm. does a job and loves movies so I get to still love movies and I have a stressful job I do on the side they're just related <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know you're not a Hollywood guy but you're clearly a guy who loves movies you've made all kinds of awesome references that make me happy oh yeah uh, you wanted to ask about a Robin Hood thing I better yeah, I better, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I better get that in because he had a good one that nobody had uh, so Billy Billy, right, nobody had set, known set it, it up set all it right. up okay so so we sit down to have this conversation I have my phone out and I'm fiddling with it to get the interview stuff ready and I remember I took this photo last night while I'm watching a movie I stopped the movie and I was watching the TV so I couldn't screen grab it but I took a photo of it and it's a scene where uh, they've gone out to the woods uh, the Russian has escorted uh, uh, the young man out for his mission and they part ways Aiden Turner Aiden Turner yeah. um, and they part ways uh, but the way that the scene is set up is you have Aiden Turner off to the left side of the screen and there's like a no shit log that goes down the the middle of the screen and divides it and then you have everybody tableau set up out and I just thought what an amazing shot and I was watching a movie with my wife she was a bit annoyed because I paused and <laughs> oh, I gotta rewind that back and took a picture of it and uh, but so I was curious what was the influence for that uh, particular shot yeah it, it's meant to be very kind of painterly we cranked the technicolory aspect yeah, of just did. that shot just a little tiny yeah. bit because it, it when we stood there and we had all the extras, one of them is my wife playing the Russian sniper. So the smallest person in that shot is my <laughs> wife, kind of dressed like a boy. Um, and that shot is meant to kind of evoke uh, the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Um, and I'm glad that you you spotted that shot because it just, it just makes me happy whenever somebody kind of notices one of these even if it's not a reference, just these things that the crew were so kind to indulge. Yeah. I, I yeah, want to go I, wider, well, and I want to go back, and it's going to be a lock-off, and we're not going to cut in for any coverage. It's just going to be like a 30s movie where we're just going to look yeah. at it. Yeah, you can't yeah. just point and shoot that. No, no, <laughs> it and it takes a minute. Yeah. It stands out, though, because of that. Like, the craftsmanship that goes into the shot and the, the work that you had to do to stage it and set it and make sure that everybody was right and that the camera was locked off in the right spot. And you were like... And then it has to be lit too, so right. that it looks o- almost overlay. Like there's lights there yeah. that kind of create that that technicolory, you know, late thirties look. When was yeah. I don't know? Somebody probably uh, has a phone to find out when Robin Hood was. I don't know. Thirty something. Yeah. yeah. Something. The, the okay. listeners have IMDb. They can, okay. they can <laughs> look it up. Yeah. They can, they can do our work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you say though. You say about uh, cranking the the tech. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was trying to get the question in my head, and then it just You're caught welcome, up with Billy. what you said. Thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, it's interesting to me, though, that you say that you, you kind of crank up the colorization effect uh, in that one, because it did seem like there were a series of shots in the movies that were more saturated than yeah. the rest, and they definitely stand out. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious, is that is that with deliberate intention as yeah. you go along? Is that in There's line? No, with- b- besides mistakes I'm not aware of in the movie, and I'm sure somebody will tell me about, 
every shot, every frame, everything you see in a frame is done with intention and not just by me, but by the production designer, Brett Hatcher, um, by Joe's score, uh, by Alex Vendler, the DP. Um, all of the elements in the movie, there's a lot of time and thought, sometimes years, sometimes months before we shoot the film and sometimes on the day where we see a, a method or a... a a direction we can go mm-hmm. to spend a little extra time because we had Elaine Gibson, our first AD, had figured out a miracle schedule for this movie to get it all into 25 days. Mm-hmm. So if Gosh. I just listened to her and her watch, mm-hmm. and she said it's time to move on, John Sales said you've got a great cast, so keep your takes to three to six takes max. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing more than that, it's probably your fault. Mm. <laughs> so I just kept it to about three takes. So if there ever a performance moment in the movie, that was something that we would have had to work on in the edit. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, that's how we crammed everything into a 25-day shoot. Um, so what was your question? I so as you're, you're, as you're talking with your DP to set up these shots, right, the, the um, color, the color. Do, you, do you know in advance this is going to be a more heavily saturated yes. shot for, for a particular reason? So you're, you're yep. hitting those story points yep. in, in conjunction with that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, th- when, when he and I first talked about this, we said, let's make the 1987 stuff look kind of like uh, Lawrence Kasdan's... Um, a little bit like the accidental tourist type look. Just the, mm-hmm. the type of film grain mm-hmm. and general lighting techniques you'd use in mm-hmm. 1987. Mm-hmm. And then also, let's, for when he gets attacked by the carjackers, let's do a little escape from New York, mm-hmm. kind of pukey green, mm-hmm. uh, John Carpenter look. And so, or, and then when he's in the, the very science fiction X Files uh, bubble tent. Biohazard. Yeah. No, let's make that look like Michael Bay, which yeah. he, you know, he, he was like, <laughs> Michael Bay, come on. But, and I'm not going to, I mean, I love The Rock. I think Michael Bay is a, a his yeah. movement, his camera movement is brilliant. Yeah. I think when you give Michael Bay a great script, he, he runs with it. Yeah, 100%. Um, and so uh, there were influences in the movie that we were trying to emulate in, in our film theory and in film language. Yeah. Um, and so those were all planned out in advance. And then you take that, the, the extra mile in color correction, you've got 20 more percent you yeah. can add to the, to the glorious yeah. visuals of your movie. Uh, and that, our color correctionist, Aiden Stanford, he was one of the hand-selected team of restorationists on Lawrence of Arabia. Holy so we shit. had this guy that just, his, his, his knowledge of, of, uh, of uh, basically film science Mm-hmm. Is an incredible. So he added another thirty, you know, yeah. that extra thirty percent or whatever we were hoping is... to go for. And then so yeah, and then in the nineteen forties, that was meant to be just you know neither of these things are meant to be a hundred percent. It's not meant to no, be pushed yeah. all the way yeah. into pastiche. It's meant to be right at the edge of perception, so the two timelines can exist together. Yeah. So the the best way to describe the forties look is. Technicolor, right at the moment you start noticing it, yeah. so right yeah. at that edge. Yeah. Because if you go another ten percent, now it will look like Technicolor. It'll feel like a pastiche, and people will, will I think, be pulled out of the movie. Yep. And it's a different film grain for the '40s as well. We actually scanned film negative yeah. blank with just the grain running, and then laid that over each. No shit. Line. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, well, it's not just it's not just the the color of the film though; it's the sound too. I mean, in, in '87, once he makes the decision 
to accept the mission, they cut to the mission, and it goes from quiet and contemplative mm-hmm. and close, yeah. and it's fucking loud. Right. Uh, uh, you, <laughs> That's you, a Andrew Smedic, our sound designer, <laughs> who's he's kind of a hasher, and he loves you know heavy metal, and he's just you know, one of my favorite people in the world, and his impulse is to go big and loud, and the fun of this movie was he'd get to be completely counter to that incredibly intimate and uncomfortably quiet if you notice you're uncomfortable in the movie at any given moment when he's alone in his house picture how he feels we're trying to do that and then when it gets to the Canadian wilderness it's time to start rewarding the audience for all their patience and so it kicks up a notch and it gets a little more bombastic and Joe's score becomes a much more grandiose action film score Uh, so we're trying to give people the promise of the title but there's meant to be a deeper layer that's also rewarding so andrew's sound design is is one of my favorite elements of the movie and we had tons of fun working together on that brad i'm gonna let you get to your question but one one more thing i want to say the score gorgeous i i I listened to it through the the end of the credits until uh the movie ran out Uh, i thought it was fantastic joe would joe would appreciate that and i think he did beautiful work and uh wax work uh, Records yeah. is releasing an LP of this movie. Are they really? They're oh. a gorgeous LP. Is it for awesome. order right now? Not yet. I don't okay. even know if I was supposed to say that. Well, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is breaking news. But Johnny Johnny Tabor, our poster artist, did a whole yeah. all new artwork for this Amazing. for this release. So it'll be the cover of the of the album is the movie poster, but now the movie poster wraps Restaurant. around to the oh, back and there's a whole other man. image on the back. And when you open it up, it, we, we talked about making it look like a pinball machine from the oh, 80s, so it almost looks like the headboard of a pinball machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you great. just sold two. <laughs> um, probably and then, three. And then, yeah. and, then, and then La La Land Records is releasing the CD. That's awesome. Um, and it'll have liner notes and, and, and they're doing a beautiful release of the film as well. So, That's great. So Joe's work will be able to be appreciated and I think for small independent films these composers work so hard and often for not much money and that's not just this movie this is all independent films the composer is one of the hardest working most underappreciated people yeah. it is I can only just say thank you to Waxwork and La La Land for wanting to put Joe's work out there man I love talking to you about this movie because the film you you know again you go back to that title We've 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 suffered through so many <laughs> nostalgia-based films. You're expecting the influences on this movie to be one thing, and then you're throwing Robin Hood at us, Errol Flynn. You're throwing, you know, uh, uh, Mister Rogers at us. You're, you're you're throwing so many unsuspecting influences on a on a, a, a film that a 2019 audience would expect from this type of genre. Mm-hmm. And you're not, you're not even throwing us the genre we're expecting. Yeah. Um, you're making your movie. You love movies. You have ideas. You want to borrow and pull and adapt uh, uh, styles and, and tastes from all of cinema. How for the? But you have a specific story you want to tell. So how do you know which influence fits into this movie? Which which influence shouldn't go in? You know. Oh God, I love you know uh, um, Giallo but this Giallo is not going to work for for the script yeah Lucky and I talked about a much more fractured flashback structure Mm -hmm. like really Sam Peckinpah freeze frames Mm -hmm. little little bursts of memory and then it jars back to real to real time Um, and it just that didn't feel right for the for the language of this movie once we kind of set the language you could get 
really experimental with the flashbacks. Hmm. We only had a 10-week editing schedule, so there wasn't a lot of time to get highly experimental, but it was a discussion, and the end agreement was kind of, to do that exploration, we might need five more weeks, and it might be completely valid, but this film kind of has its own <laughs> language. And it's already, the John Sales and I talked a lot about this movie already being very experimental. My casting director, Kelly Roy, and I once talked about casting um, an actor that I thought would have been great as the Russian. And the guy that we wound up with, Nikolai Sankov, killed it. He's incredible. Yeah. But an actor that would have been a big risk. And Kelly just said, look, your movie's already taking... You know, mm. twenty risks. It's not time to take the twenty-first <laughs> risk. Like, let's just let's just do the right thing here. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope that answered. I guess. I mean, I I, I, think, I think so. Uh, I, I I feel like you know you spend so much time. Oh, what I would influence, personally, what I would well, I would yeah. want to throw the kitchen sink into my big coming out part. Yeah, it takes a certain amount of of restraint to not do that. I mean, there was a not even a big it wasn't a big discussion my editor and I when we cut together the 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 garage sequence at the end of the movie where Barr is grabbing a shovel and a lantern and uh, right. he lights his his lan- he, he lights the lantern grabs yeah. his shovel and Could he takes his sling too. off yeah, and he yeah. and he cracks his knuckles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know it's the end of the movie. Is a big Sam Raimi reference going to drag the audience out? And I go, w- when is it ever wrong to just say you love, <laughs> you, that, you, that you love Sam Raimi? Yeah. And for when he finally sees the movie to go, that filmmaker was inspired by me and he, and, and he loves me. And so it's just a matter of when it's appropriate and also the, the punchiness of that. And again, you've got Hitchcock ends up influencing Brian De Palma and you've got uh, Robert Altman ends up influencing Paul Thomas Anderson and you have these people that no matter what through film history you can't help who you're influenced by and hopefully you you take a little seed of what they were doing and you you show it to a new audience of filmmakers and go that's a neat way to do that and I won't come on here and say these were all my ideas uh, there's a ton of original stuff in the movie that I'm that I'm proud of that I won't even talk about because I want people to try to find it and hopefully discover it on their own. And I'm not even sure I'm the right person to go around telling you right. what I'm proud right. of. Somebody else right. has to find it. But these references are done with love, and I think that they match the language of the movie. And if it went too severe, we would just go, that's not... not the right call. Like the jump cut to shooting Bigfoot, mm-hmm. where it's like this... In, that was written in the script, and I just always thought that was the most 70s kind of peck and paw thing I could do <laughs> would be to, he says he can kill Bigfoot, he grabs his weapons, and the very next shot is him shooting the Bigfoot in the head. Any other movie would go to 10 minutes of tracking. Yeah. Well, guess what? It still goes to 10 minutes of tracking because he doesn't kill it. Um, but I get to do that little flourish, yeah. which felt like something that you could kind of get away with in the 70s yeah. that I'm not sure there's a... A context for it now, so a certain sector of the audience might be completely put off by that. But it's done with intention. It's done with love, mm-hmm. and and hopefully it, it never goes into full blown pastiche. I don't want that. But I don't think those influences are totally obvious when you're watching the film. Maybe the Sam Raimi thing, you sure. know, like you know, yeah. Evil Dead. Okay, I get that. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, like the Robin Hood thing, I had yeah. I had no clue. I just said, oh, that's cool looking shot. Yeah, and I think that's what's. Uh, one of the additional surprises and enjoyments of your film is yeah, it's a, clear that there's an influence, but what is that influence? I don't know. There are certain moments that that 
as you're building it on the day, you realize, wow, that looks like that thing. Why don't we frame it up a little bit more? And now we can have an echo with mm. something else that I love. The shot of Sam looking at the fire, just coincidentally, you 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 center punch it, and now it looks like Daniel Day-Lewis looking at the oil fire, and there will be blood. It's just these things, just they all they all have echoes through film history. I just think that that's just how you keep all this stuff alive. So uh, a Herculean task to put this all together, to get it out there finally took a decades, decade. Um, and now you're winding down. You're at least over the hill with the film. Are you eager to jump back into the next movie? I, John Sayles said that with any thing like this there's kind of a wave that comes along with it and you can choose whether to ride that wave to your next project or let it pass you by he said if, if I let it pass me by it could be as hard as it was to make this one he said yeah. but you may be tired and you might be ready for a break and you might want to take a year off I'm not wealthy so that's a concern as well <laughs> is just paying the mortgage over mm -hmm. the next year and so I'm writing. I have something I'm really excited about. I have two projects that are finished that I uh, now have a management team at Roar that I'm working with. Um, and we're, we're developing those things, but I wouldn't say I'm racing to the next one because it just, I am, I am, I'm not complaining, but I'm, I'm tired. It's been since August or July, I've been on a festival tour with this movie oh, wow. and here in, Virginia today, yeah. thrilled to see this with a sold-out audience, um, and that gives you the energy, but when I get home, there's certainly a, a desire to crash and just kind of let my brain reset, but there's another part of me that goes, why? Why slow down? If, if there's an opportunity, I mean, that's a privilege to get to tell stories, and, and, I'm, and that may never happen again. Wh whether or not I ride whatever this wave sure, is, sure, that may sure. never happen again. That happens to people. So I'm just grateful for this moment right now, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens next. I'm excited. <laughs> you want to ask your question? I do. Uh, so we have been very fortunate to talk with a lot of filmmakers, uh, especially filmmakers who... Uh, do things independently or take on more of the responsibility for themselves and so we are very familiar with how difficult it is to make a movie and how lowly it can make you feel at times when things aren't working the way that they want to uh, so the way that we like to end these conversations is in those times when you feel lowly what moment from this experience or from your filmmaking experience do you look back at that helps buoy that and encourage you to push on through to the next thing I remember hitting a wall so bad at one point that, I mean, it was just so obvious. The writing was on the wall. You're not going to... The years you've spent on this were for nothing. Not for nothing. It was, all would have been character building, would have taught me something about myself. But it will not lead to making a movie. And it's over. And I remember walking around town. I left my house, took a long walk around town, and I'm not ashamed to admit I cried. I wasn't really feeling bad for myself. I just felt like I'd wasted a lot of good people's time. I felt like my wife was very, very patient and that it was over. And I know the struggle of other filmmakers that are trying to get their first project made. I felt it. And uh, it felt very much like, well, I have a background in journalism and, I, and in illustration, I should... Tomorrow, I'm going to start looking for jobs at the local paper uh, or any of the local papers. I'll go back to journalism. I'll write. I'll be happy, and I can be supportive with my wife and keeping things afloat. 
And when I went home the next day, she just basically said, pull yourself back up the ropes and go one more round. See what happens after one more round. And I think six months later, John Sales said, I'm in. So don't give up. Um, look for allies. Look for people that believe in you, that are encouraging. You'll know that when you find it. Um, be tenacious. Don't be afraid to take other jobs while you're working. You know, I, I, I was lucky enough to have a producing opportunity land in my lap. And instead of being stubborn about that and going, no, I want to stick to the one thing I'm doing. And it's for no money. You go, you go help other filmmakers tell mm-hmm. their stories. You'll learn a bunch in the process. You'll meet a third of your team. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't always worry about whether or not this opportunity is going to be lucrative. Look at the people you're going to get to work with. Um, and that's the best advice I can give is help other people. Um, I think there's a Mr. Rogers quote about in tough times, always look for the people that are helping each other. Mm. And I think that I can end with that. That's awesome. Bob. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I love it. I, you know, I find it encouraging. I find it inspiring. Uh, we're big fans of the movie. Yeah. We're excited to watch it tonight. Uh, where can we send our listeners to find you social media-wise, website-wise? I, I don't have any social media myself. God bless I you. Have a de- <laughs> <laughs> I have a defunct Twitter account that I've never actually posted anything on. Uh, but there's an active uh, Twitter handle for... Hitler Bigfoot Um, and they kind of keep people posted with everything that's going on Um, but to reach me I'd have to give you an email address (laughs) (laughs) we'll find you we'll find you all right Bob thank you so much really really appreciate it thank you Uh, all right take care guys and we are back in the door cave huh when I threw it to Bob I actually threw it to myself I just, I'm going to call you Bob from now on. That's I think fine. It'll be fine. That's how I roll. <laughs> I'm so good at intros and outros, Billy. You know this. I do know this, but I think that the conversation turned out excellent. I could have talked to that dude for another hour. I thought it sure. was amazing. In fact, we talked to him for quite a bit of time after this conversation because Andy left us up in the uh, projection booth with him so he could go, you know, filter everybody into the auditorium and then have a dramatic appearance of Bob right before the movie starts. And we continued to pick his brain after we press stop on the conversation. Talking favorite movies and war stories with a guy who puts out a film like that was a real treat, especially with like the cast of people involved in his project. It's amazing to me that like, I guess he's not a name dropper in the sense that he was like, well, guess who I did this with or whatever. Yeah, but, but the, like, uh, the talent that he rallied is insane. Yeah. Uh, oh, Lucky McKee, John Sayles, Douglas Trumbull. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's that it's Trumbull that really, yeah. you know, throws a monkey in the wrench. It's like, that's just amazing. Talk about a guy who has seriously affected the cinematic landscape as we know it. Yeah. Uh, Doug Trumbull, for sure. Um, but there you go. If you have not seen The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, why are you still listening? It's on demand right now. Yep. You can go rent it from Amazon or wherever your hot VOD titles are purchased. <laughs> and I recommend that you do so. And I think you'll enjoy the experience all the better knowing that it's not, you know, hobo with a shotgun. It's not 
Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez's grindhouse. It's very much its own beast. It's a contemplative movie about a guy trying to find his place in the world and understands what his legacy is and how it's going to define his future. And he's an old man while he's doing it. It's yeah. amazing. And, you know, Sam Elliott's really hot right now with The Star is Born. Yeah. But this well, is also the role. he's Sam Elliott. Well, he's yeah. Sam Elliott. He's Sam Elliott. And if you love Sam Elliott, you yeah. want to see this movie. It's this is where you want to put all your attention. Yeah, absolutely. All right. There you go, folks. Um, that's it for this week. Next week, we've got uh, a really interesting conversation with uh, an actor and an actor actor and an actor an actor and an actor. No, an actor and director. There you go. Thank you, Billy. You got there. Um, Karen Maine and Natalia Dyer of the independent film Yes, God, Yes, which just premiered at South by Southwest. Uh, and which is a delight. Yeah. I, I actually, I had a lot of fun with this movie. So I like the film as well. Too. I'm, yeah, I, I think you guys are going to enjoy the chat. So until next time, folks, find our other dorks, uh, Lisa Gullickson, the wife dork at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram, Darren Smith at the Disco Dork on all social medias, Brian Young, he's at the Turtle Dork on Twitter for sure. At the Turtle Dork one on Instagram, Brian B. Young on Facebook. You've memorized all that? I don't know about the Brian B. Young on Facebook part, but I say it extremely confidently. Yeah. And it's working I, okay. I think you did great. And Billy, where can we find you? You can find me at WB Das on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. And you can also find me at Bill and Claire's, well, at B A C E A podcast on Twitter for Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures. And I am Brad Gullickson at MouthDork, all social medias. Come find me there. And please rate and review the show on iTunes. It really does wonders of getting a larger audience for these chat casts. I want to keep doing it. We want to keep talking to rad people. Please How are we going to keep us. going to Sundance on the cred of the amazing conversations that we have if people like you don't take a minute and review M5 Star? I like your guilt trip. I, look, man, I'm, I have no shame. All right, folks, until next time, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 